You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Andy Moore. On today's episode, we're talking with Elena Joy Thurston. Elena Joy will be a keynote at this year's virtual Zero Mental Health Symposium. This year's event will take place September 28th through 30th, and the theme is Exploring Family Constructs. Learn more at zerosymposium.org. We'd also like to thank some of our sponsors, the Anne and Henry Zero Foundation, the Maxine and Jack Zero Foundation, and the George Kaiser Family Foundation for their generous continued support of the symposium. Elena Joy Thurston is an inspirational LGBTQ plus speaker, trainer, author, and founder of the nonprofit Pride and Joy Foundation, which is dedicated to reducing the rate of suicide and homelessness in the LGBTQ plus community. A Mormon mother of four who lost her marriage, her church, and her community when she came out as a lesbian, her viral TEDx talk on surviving conversion therapy has been viewed more than 45,000 times. We asked Cynthia Mooney, Children's Behavioral Health Community Coordinator and Empowered Voices Adult Leader for the Mental Health Association Oklahoma to interview Elena Joy. And before we go any further, we want to let you know that this episode contains some content pertaining to suicidality, personal safety, and conversion therapy that could be difficult for some listeners. Okay, let's hear the conversation between Elena Joy and Cynthia. The Mental Health Download starts now. Elena, it is so wonderful to have you here with us today, and I really appreciate you taking some time to speak with us. Just to let listeners kind of know a little bit about you, can you share a little bit about your background and some of your experiences? Absolutely. So my name is Elena Joy. My pronouns are she, her. I am the executive director of the Pride and Joy Foundation. Our mission is to reduce the rate of suicide and homelessness in the LGBTQ community. I'm also a mom of four beautiful kids. I am a fly fisher, and I am also a DEI consultant with an emphasis in LGBTQ inclusion. So that's who I am. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I have never been fly fishing, so... (laughs) We're going to have to remedy that. (laughs) So through all of, of your experiences, would you be willing to share with us what your process of coming out was like? Yeah, mine was unique and at the same time, totally universal, right? One of those experiences. I was 37 years old when I realized the thing that was really bugging me about my life was the fact that I was not physically attracted to my husband of 17 years. And that realization came, you know, a lot of us, we call ourselves late bloomers. And a lot of us, really had convinced ourselves, especially as women, I think women have a tendency to disconnect or disassociate from their bodies from a pretty young age. And so that late blooming is a pretty common experience in the lesbian community. And like many others, I really had this concept of, oh, that's just not who I am. I'm just not into cuddling. I'm not into intimacy. It's just must be who I am. Maybe that's something that only teenagers have with that cra- those crazy hormones. And once you're into your 20s and 30s, like you just don't feel that way anymore, right? It's amazing the rationalization that we can come up with. But at age 37, 
which for context, I am age 43 now. So about six years ago, I, I realized I was capable of those feelings, just not towards men. And that was a something I tried to really shut down because I was part of a pretty conservative, high demand faith community. And it was definitely not an option to both act on same-sex attraction and be a good standing member of this church. And I had sacrificed so much in the previous 20 years of my life to be in good standing, to reserve my spot in heaven, to know that I would be with my children for eternity, not just while we were on the planet, right? So all of those things kind of combined to make me feel like if I act on this, I am losing so much. Something is wrong with me and I need to fix it. So that's where you have a upper middle class, white, college educated, suburban mom enrolling herself in conversion therapy to try to fix this problem. So it wasn't until I was able to recognize how damaging that experience was to me to the point where I like 57% of participants, I was suicidal and it got really bad and I was fighting it on a daily basis and I could feel myself getting weaker and weaker and not being able to withstand the suicidal ideation that was going on in my head. And it came to a point that I realized it would be better for my kids to have a gay mom than a dead mom. And it was that decision that started the entire healing process. And then my coming out really began. I would say that my coming out to myself had started, you know, six months, eight months previously, but it wasn't until I chose if what it takes for me to stay alive is to embrace this identity, that is what I'm going to do. Thank you for sharing that story and for your vulnerability to, to bring that forward because it is something that um, is so personal. And thank you for using that story, I mean, to help educate others. You speak in your, your TED talk, one of the things you talk about is, is how you navigated that within your faith community. And for so many people, their faith communities are their families. So can you speak about, you know, what, what was that process like a little bit? And, and then what was, what was it like to try to find new supports? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? That faith community definitely did feel like a family. And it was very intentional that way. In fact, we referred to each other as brother and sister. You know, I was Sister Thurston for 20 years of my life to everyone that mattered to me. You know, not in my own family, but everyone else. And it was a framework of God is a heavenly father and we are his children, right? And that's why we refer to each other as brother and sister, because it was reinforcing that belief that we are all spirit children of Heavenly Father. And the entire point of this life on earth is to get back to Heavenly Father and to have an eternal family. That's why we are married in temples and we're sealed together. It's not till death do us part. It is for time and all eternity. And that is that was the defining perspective was this life on earth is temporal. It's very temporary. It is the entire point of it is to tempt us and to withstand those temptations. And those who can do that will return to Heavenly Father and be with their spouse and their children for eternity. 
So yes, this concept of family was overarching <laughs> in my life for two decades. And coming away from that was incredibly hard. I lost everyone. I lost my friends from 20 years. And that was an intense realization to realize like their commitment and their loyalty was to the person they perceived me as. And once that perception changed, then that commitment and loyalty was no longer there, which ironically is the exact opposite of the definition of family, right? Family is who will be there for you, no matter who you are, how you evolve, how you change, how you progress, your family should always be there for you, right? Like that's our societal view of family. So it was hard. And I am just now coming to understand how that's affecting my relationships in the present. I've really struggled to create that network of support. And I think that's pretty universal among late bloomers as well. Maintaining friendships as an adult is kind of a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> I often joke that the, the biggest miracle that Jesus did was he had 12 friends in his thirties. Like that's amazing. So yeah, so there's that baseline level of challenge, creating a network of support in your forties when you're kind of starting over with life. It doesn't, help the fact that I live in a very conservative area of America. Uh, the LGBTQ people that are here are not well connected. They're very distanced, very isolated from each other. Luckily, the internet helps that. And especially during COVID, there was a lot of really great resources. And now I feel like I have an incredible network of support all online. <laughs> I haven't been able really to find my people in person yet, but I, and I'm starting to realize that part of that is, I'm, I'm not going to use the phrase PTSD, but definitely a consequence of losing everyone in my life. I'm now having a really hard time maintaining friendships, continuing to reach out to people, continuing to prioritize them in my life. And I'm realizing that that's probably a response to what I went through five years ago. I think one of the things that you touched on that was so key is really that feeling of belonging. Like we're, mm. you know, trying to figure out where do we fit, but which the age old question, you know, <laughs> right. And, and so I, I guess I'm wondering as your sense of belonging or, or where you belonged changed, how did that play into mindfulness and how you started processing through that? Absolutely. I think it's a through line through the entire narrative story of what I experienced, because like many Americans, I grew up in a really chaotic family. And I wasn't sure how I fit into that family. And so it was understandable that in my teenage years, when a church approached me and said, we can be your family and we can tell you how to raise an amazing family of your own. And you won't just be together here on this planet. You're going to be together for all eternity. Like talk about belonging. <laughs> of course, I jumped into that with two feet right in there. Right. Like that sounded so good to me. And um I spent the next two decades learning how to belong first to that faith family, but also by the time I was 20, I was married and I married into a family that went back in the church generations and generations. I mean, this, and a huge part of it was no one divorced in that family. Like that was just never an option. Whereas my family history is rampant with divorce. So it felt like, 
okay, if I can slide into this family, I will belong for the rest of my life. And who's going to say no to that? <laughs> right? So, but then when I got to the point when it was time to change my concept of what belonging was, I realized that a huge reason why this integral part of me was not apparent to me was because I didn't belong to myself. I didn't even understand myself. And I was living for this perspective of heaven. And whatever about me needed to change to fit that perspective, that's what I was going to do, which is the antithesis of belonging to yourself, right? And I don't think I could have gotten to that realization without starting those principles of mindfulness, of self-awareness, of presence. Once I could stop judging myself for everything I was doing or not doing, that's when I was able to finally start to get to know myself. And that's when I could start to really belong to myself. That's such a beautiful statement. And I think regardless of our walk in life, it's, it's tough, you know, like falling in love with your authentic self <laughs> work. <laughs> so we know, you know, through all the work and I, and I know you guys probably focus on this a lot with the, with your foundation is that sense of belonging being a protective factor. And so I guess one of the questions I would have is how do we then support that or encourage it as, as others are navigating the process of coming out? Yeah, I think it starts with safety. Like you said, the protective factor. We recently did a workshop for parents centered on self-harm because that is skyrocketing during COVID, right? And so one of the things that the teachers taught us that I've really grasped onto is this concept of safety and belonging. When a child is really coming into themselves and starting to become aware of, wow, this, this orientation or this gender identity, it's different than every other person in my family, people that I am DNA related to, right? Mar children of children that are LGBTQ plus are one of the only marginalized populations that are born to parents not of the same marginalized population, right? So there's already a default. And a really great analogy to that is deaf children who are born to hearing parents. Like we all know that the deaf community has its own language, its own culture, right? And, and hearing parents often are completely unaware of all of that, <laughs> right? And so it, right from default, it creates this disconnect. I am other than everyone else that I am related to. And so as we kind of explore that concept, our teacher taught us to really look at concentric circles of safety. Is the individual feeling safe within themselves? Like, is their own mind a safe place to be? And then from there, we go to their family, right? So that's the outer circle to that, right? Do they feel a sense of safety within their family? And then we take it to school, and then we take it to society at large. And so when we're kind of assessing risk on how are our kids doing? Is there self-harm risk? One of the ways that we can do that is by figuring out how safe do they feel in all of those concentric circles. I love that you're you're sharing this information out with parents because it, it really is one of those things that even if you yourself don't have a child that identifies within the LGBTQ community, you probably have a friend who does. Oh, yes. And so sharing that information from parent to parent, sometimes just being that safe person to have a conversation with can be so valuable. So I love that, that you're bringing that out with parents. Can you share more about the work and mission of the Pride and Joy Foundation? 
I think you really touched on it right there. The foundation really started with this concept of, you know, I imagine the scenario of a dad or a mom going into work and saying to their best friend at work, right? We all have them. My kid just came out to me last night and I, I don't know what to do. Like my head is reeling. And for that friend to respond with, all right, well, whatever you do, don't do conversion therapy. Cause I listened to this podcast or I went to this class and I heard the repercussions of it. So whatever you do, just don't do that. Like that is our dream <laughs> to empower everyone in the world with that information. But it has been absolutely incredible because what we found is that, well, first of all, there's statistics coming out that about one third of Gen Z is identifying as not strictly heterosexual, right? So one in three. And the majority of Gen Z's parents are Gen Xers, my generation. And, you know, we grew up with Alanis Morissette, right? Like we are ready to go to bat for our kids but we yep. don't have the information because we were not raised with inclusivity. When we were raised, queer was a dirty word. You know, like there's so much of a disconnect between how LGBTQ lives are perceived between Gen X and Gen Z that we try to fill in that gap and empower parents with the information that they need to be the advocates that their child needs them to be. Yeah, and I think that that is such a key piece of it because it really is about being that fierce advocate for your child while you're dealing with your own stuff yes. as a parent. Yeah, And so the support is from both sides. I, I think that that is a, a beautiful opportunity for the community to come together to have some really good conversations because you're right, the youth, they just see it in such a different way, definitely different than when I was growing up. Yes. It is openly discussed, talked about, um, you know, my kids will just openly correct me on pronouns if I'm using the wrong ones. And it's not a thing. It's just we're all working through this and, and we're trying to do the, the best we can. Let's help each other out. And I love that that's the way that it's being handled with the younger generation. I just always feel like I'm playing catch up, but I'm wanting to catch up. So that's good. That's how yeah, I should be, right? Absolutely. Always learning and growing. So you're speaking at the Zero Mental Health Symposium this year, and we're so excited to have you. Can you give us just a couple key points of things that you're going to be talking about? Absolutely. We're going to go through the conversion therapy process that I experienced and the different versions of conversion therapy, the most popular ones that are out there right now, both in America and worldwide. And we're going to talk about some warning signs if we see that, because sometimes it can happen that through a grandparent or through a religious leader, and we might not even be aware that it's taking place, right? My husband at the time certainly was not aware of what was really happening in those sessions that he was paying for, right? So definitely empowering on the experience itself. And then as well of, as how I deconstructed that experience and brought it to a point where I could speak about it and use it as a point of learning. And I certainly wouldn't go so far as to say, I'm healed, <laughs> right? Like, there's nothing like that. In fact, the Williams Institute published a study in 2020 that 98% of conversion therapy participants experience lifetime suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. And my health professionals have said, that's probably where you are. Maybe it will go away, but we need to act proactively and preventively with this knowledge that this is likely where you are. And so we, we treat that in a very specific way in my family and in my community. It is not swept under the rug. 
the people in my life need to know that on a regular basis, I fall into a pretty dark pit and they need to be aware. So we're kind of be, we're going to be discussing all of that. It should be pretty good. Thank you. That's it. So here would be one of my questions because I work a lot with, with the empowered voices youth. Is this, is this more professional geared or just the general public? Who's That's a great question. I am not a licensed professional of any kind. <laughs> Me either. It's okay. <laughs> so now while I've studied it a lot because I want to protect myself, I would just be, I would say that I'm just going to be sharing my story and it will be up to the individuals and the professionals in the room to take from that what they will. Thank you. I think that, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, the youth are seeing this so differently. And so they are advocating for things that when I was their age, I didn't even know existed on the planet. And so it's beautiful to watch, but just equipping them with tools, skills, you know, knowledge is so important. So thank you for sharing that information out. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us today? Just that I am so appreciative that this organization is willing to pass the microphone. I mean, you've built this incredible platform of people that can actually enact change and have really positive impact on the world. And the fact that you're willing to share the microphone and allow me to kind of share my story and offer help where I can, it means so much. We are very happy to have you and so honored to be able to elevate your voice because it is something that I think a lot of people need to understand a little bit more about. I really am a firm believer that we learn best from those that have that lived experience. Mm. It's more powerful and, and more meaningful. And I think that, that, it builds a relationship, whether we know you personally or not. It, it, it builds a relationship of, of knowledge in a different way than learning something in a textbook or an article. So sure. thank you so much for bringing it forward and sharing your time with us. Thank you, Cynthia. You can hear Elena Joy Thurston speak at the virtual Zero Mental Health Symposium in September. Learn more at www.zerosymposium.org. Thank you for listening to the Mental Health Download. I'm Addie McCaslin with Mental Health Association, Oklahoma.